Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 47 of the Double Identity Podcast with your hosts, Barney and Angela. Now, first things first, Angela, how are you today? Pretty good. It's uh, a new week. Here we go. Ready to record with you. You I'm sound hoping... so enthused by this idea. Well, I'm, I'm hoping you don't say a couple of magic words that have become extremely annoying. Oh, at uh, Happy Hanukkah? No. Could you elaborate what these words are? Happy New Year. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah I didn't have to say it this week. This is great. You tricked me, I think. And a happy new year to you, Angelo. Yeah, yeah, in mid-March. There's no better time than now to wish each other happy new year. I think it's a continual thing, really, when you really think about it. You can do this whenever you want during the year. Okay. Uh, can we go on to the first topic of business? Sure. All right. Uh, you wanted to discuss something, something about fatherhood, something, something I don't understand, so go ahead. It's just that my kid's been playing with that Bitmoji app I mentioned last week, and... Uh, she understands it way better than I can. I am completely lost when presented with these apps that seem so popular and nothing makes me feel older than like the old man shaking his uh, smartphone around saying, back in my day, we didn't use Bitmojis and ha- we're happy with the apps Apple gave us. So right now you are using like most of the social media ones, right? Like, so you're using the Facebook app? I do not use the Facebook app. I haven't logged into Facebook in a few weeks, actually. Oh, perfect. That's great uh, for our show. Uh, <laughs> you use Twitter? I do use Twitter. Instagram? Yeah, I like Instagram. Uh, Snapchat? Nope. No idea. I've looked at that app and it befuddles me. Bumble? I don't know what that is. Uh, Grinder. I know what that is. I don't use it. Oh, well, there we go. So Bitmoji is something that confuses you. Do you feel like you've now hit that moment, the old man moment? I, I'm slowly getting there. Um, in fact, my back has been hurting this weekend. Uh, so I'm feeling older than I really should. And I think just I just want to hunker down with a desktop computer and uh, work on uh, VisiCalc and BASIC. <laughs> These sound like really lofty goals that you have. But you know what? That's fine. That's fine. How would you like to sit down next to a lower-end Apple laptop, though, instead of a desktop? That's something that might be happening soon uh, if the rumors are true. Now, look, uh, Apple obviously never reports on rumors. They don't talk about them. But uh, lots of rumor sites have been talking about Apple keeping the MacBook Air around uh, way longer than they thought they would. Already, it's been a long time um, because the MacBook was supposed to be the successor to that. And uh, I've mentioned the this MacBook is simply too expensive at this well, point. Well, that's I think. the problem is. Every time somebody asks me, oh, what Apple laptop should I buy? I say buy an iPad because Apple laptops right now, they're great, but they're all super expensive to get a good one. And the MacBook Air is fine. It's just you get a nicer screen on an iPad and you can pretty much do almost everything you'd want to do on a MacBook Air. But it looks like Apple's going to be making an app, uh, an, a MacBook Air that has a retina screen and updated internals and i'm wondering if they're gonna have uh only usb-c ports or if they'll actually keep the usb-a ports which would be kind of nice because people looking to buy a regular laptop don't want to deal with the problems that usb-c starts to cause you although it's going to be a great input when everybody has it right now most people use uh the regular old-fashioned usb-a Right, it's that uh, weird transitional period where old tech and new tech are kind of converging, so it's difficult for uh, early adopters to get what they want uh, very easily. Yeah, uh, recently I bought a, uh, an SSD I mentioned on the show, and it came with uh, a USB-C to USB-C uh, 
wire or USB uh, C to USB A uh, cable. Why did I say wire? Anyway, a cable. Uh, I don't have any USB C ports on my 2015 Mac uh, iMac, so I use the. I just switched it, but I haven't really seen much USB C stuff. It's not taking off as quickly as Apple probably thought it would. It's not like when they removed the um, CD. CD drive yeah. or DVD drive, yeah. Yeah, or even when they just had USB on the first IMAX. That was a big step as well, but that was adopted way quicker than USB-C. Uh, well, related to that, actually, I was watching something, and I was noticing on the show everybody was pretty much using MacBooks, and then all of a sudden one of the characters was using a Surface Pro, um, the Surface la- laptops there that Microsoft makes. I was like, oh, that's weird that they... They switch brands, but that's fine, whatever. I guess, you know, product placement is product placement. And then I realized why, uh, as part of the plot, somebody uh, was in the room and uh, had to steal some data, and they had to use a USB drive. And if they had a MacBook, the person would have been uh, having to carry around the dongle, and I don't think bad guys carry around dongles. You know what? I don't think so either. Uh, If you're a fictional bad guy... Want to let us know how you feel about dongles? Uh, go ahead, tweet at us, double inch redundancy. We'd love to hear from you. It would have been funny, actually, <laughs> if, you know, a whole scene of the show would have been him going to an Apple store, asking for what dongle he'd have to buy to be able to steal data off somebody's MacBook. A, a very convoluted process for a simple bit of information, I'd imagine. So I figured uh, it must have been easier for them to just use a regular old-fashioned laptop like a Surface that has uh, all the ports instead of just the one port. Well, if he were a master hacker, you know, like a Gordon G. Hacker man, he would have had the dongles with him already. He could have put, um, oh, forget it. <laughs> I, that, or you could hack by Bluetooth, really. Like, you don't even need a dongle. Oh, yeah. Bluetooth to his phone. Beep, boop, yeah. done. Beep, boop, done, hacked. Gordon G. Hacker man. Uh, what show was this, by the way? I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going to say what show it was. Can you give us a, a rough estimation of what it is? It's a show on Netflix. Gotcha. Gilmore Girls. Double Density presents the sounds of your youth. Uh, so continuing on, uh, brand recognition is uh, very important to the very success of a brand. Uh, being identified in certain ways is a uh, great way for a brand to expand as well as maintain market control. Uh, in some cases, though, when a brand's at the top, they do less than uh, savory things, uh, which then uh, come to light. In this instance, I'm talking about Google helping the Pentagon build AI for drones, uh, which ties into our debate from two weeks ago. Yeah, the thing with Google, they've always wanted to be um, the company that isn't going to be evil. But uh, we're kind of crossing the threshold here where um, they're getting involved in things that can hurt other people. And according to an article in Gizmodo, um, people are starting to leave Google because of this. uh, And they're speaking out about it. And uh, it's not looking good on Google. No, I mean, uh, being in collusion with the Pentagon in order to build AI for a better killing machine really doesn't strike me as a good move. But it's uh, in a step in proving me right in our debate, unfortunately. Well, I think that we're all screwed. It's just a matter of time, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I, yeah, this is not a good uh, fit for Google to be going out and 
literally arming drones with the smarts to pinpoint certain people. Now, the other side of the argument will say, well, they'll only pinpoint bad people, but um, the video I linked a couple of weeks ago in the AI versus aliens debate about uh, the slaughter bots kind of shows how that can go awry. Right, so originally Google's motto was don't be evil, but then in 2015, from what I remember, uh, Google's parent company, Alphabet, switched that to do the right thing. So in this case, maybe uh, Google is doing the right thing by, uh, I don't know, programming back doors into AI to make sure that these drones don't kill fellow human beings. I don't know. Well, that's actually a, a decent take on it. Maybe that is the case. I don't think it is, it, though. It, it, it definitely is not. That. No, I don't I think that'd be legal, that. actually. So, defrauding the government, especially the military, not a good idea. Now, Angela Paola in uh, modern times is often associated with uh, rock and roll music, right? So from the 1950s onwards, the idea of paying to get your record on the air uh, has been illegal, more or less. Uh, But a new form of payola has risen in our digital age, and that is paying for placement on very popular playlists on streaming services such as Spotify and Apple. So I linked you to a Daily Dot article this week all about the black market of Spotify playlists. I did not know this existed. It's like a, a scummy version. Well, SEO is kind of scummy, uh, but it's it's a weird way to get yourself out there. It's I guess it's legal. Is it legal in this case? It's not like payola, which was illegal. This seems to be sort of like gray market. So it's gray market in terms of like, it's not outright outlawed, but it does violate the newer terms of service that Spotify has brought up. And I just don't like, I, I really don't like this way of doing things. Even... Last week, uh, when I when I had mentioned uh, people go and and rate us on iTunes and stuff, I I don't know how I feel about telling people to do that. It's not a bad thing. I don't know. Maybe it's just me who's who's kind of like an old curmudgeon, as we established just a few minutes ago. I think it is a good idea for people to go rate podcasts and stuff. That's I guess different, uh, and it is a way of getting us uh, getting people noticed. But this is a totally different thing. You're actually we're not paying our listeners uh, to. Uh, go rate us unless brian is that something you want to be starting i have a very very tiny wallet so uh, that is not something that i'm looking to do actively but hey if you want to start something double density podcast at gmail.com is always open for business but we're not taking any money uh we're not giving out any yeah, money yeah. wink wink nudge no nudge. no if if you feel that where we deserve uh your review in itunes or apple Podcasts, whatever please you can go do that uh, we're not going to be paying anyone for it. Um, the furthest we'll go is we'll maybe read your review on the show if it's a nice one or an especially mean one. Although hopefully there's nobody that does that. As long as it's a five-star mean review. I would love an especially mean one. So if you go ahead and want to head over to the podcast store and leave us. Uh, what if they left us like a five-star review but a really mean like like r- actual review content? Yeah, that's I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we invite all of our listeners and haters to and lovers to do that. Uh, head on over to the podcast store and do that. But yeah, there's this massive market, um, especially uh, in the rap world, uh, for people to pay uh, for placement on playlists, right? So the idea is that you pay um, usually a couple of thousand dollars to uh, secure placement on any of these lists that get lots of listens and then therefore bolster your numbers and you look better for it too. And I guess from there, it kind of snowballs and then starts growing organically. So it becomes at a certain point, it's just a way to get your yourself into a playlist. And then from there, people actually start listening. And if your music's actually good, then it'll grow from there. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I'd compare this to like, uh, like one of those compilation CDs, but it's new every week, pretty much, almost. Okay, that makes sense. I remember big shiny tunes. Yeah, there you go. Or uh, in Canada, we have now. So in the states, it's now that that's what I call music. Um, it's really fascinating. I wonder how they're planning on regulating this because the thing is that it is Pala just on a digital platform. And like you said, um, sort of legal, although like you said, now they're, they've changed the rules, so it's no longer legal. It's just um, people, and, and the people who are running these services are making a lot of money off of it as well. Yeah, exactly. So Capitalism. a little bit of everything to go around. Another thing to consider about all this is uh, something that the article does bring up is the fact that you can't tell when a playlist is active necessarily. So you can see a user count. But you don't necessarily see how many people are actually uh, giving listens uh, to these playlists, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and a secondary problem that someone doesn't necessarily think of when they're handing uh, sacks of cash over to uh, playlist or X who has a following. I don't think this is uh, something that can happen on Apple Music, though. I think this is only a Spotify thing because... Playlists don't seem to show that on Apple Music. It doesn't show how many users it has or anything like that. As far as I can tell, maybe I'm missing something. I unfortunately couldn't tell you because I am a Spotify user. And uh, what they're describing in the article, I knew very well. Yeah, it seemed very foreign to me actually reading the article. I'm, I've never actually used Spotify. I almost signed up for it once. And then I decided against it because they didn't feel like creating an account. And I knew Apple Music was coming soon. So I just decided to wait for uh, what was probably going to be a better service because Apple does everything better than everybody else. Just Old like their man laptops. Angelo. Just like, sorry? Just like their laptops. Uh, just like uh, their Cupertino Park, you mean? Yeah. I don't think people are going around Google headquarters hurting themselves. I wonder if that's... A, apparently, look, after we recorded last week, I, there was other podcasts that were talking about it. And uh, first of all, I was terrified that uh, other podcasts would make the same joke as me. Uh, because I listen to a lot of dads on a lot of other podcasts and they all make dad jokes. But so far, I haven't heard anybody say that same silly joke as me. But uh, the other thing is that there's a lot of buildings that have a lot of glass in them and people walk into it all the time. It's not just an Apple problem, although the big doors at Apple seem to be heavier and uh, more prone to breaking people's faces. (laughs) A ringing endorsement of the Apple culture out there in Cupertino, California from Angelo. Forever the Apple Stan. You know, Angelo, you and I sometimes like to share interesting links, images, and videos with each other, uh, otherwise known as uh, viral videos or memes, or as they're known in certain parts of the internet, memes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, a, a hollowed repository of memes, uh, knowyourmeme.com, is celebrating its 10th anniversary. I would like to think that uh, my coming of age with memes started with when I started to get to know you uh better um, i guess about like what seven or eight years ago you kind of introduced me to um know your meme actually because before that i would just kind of come across memes here and there you recently came up with your own meme uh for our friends at the not alone podcast with uh sam having slowly lost his mind uh, researching uh david ike and his reptilians and uh you came up pretty with a pretty good meme and, uh, I thought it wasn't that bad. I thought it was uh, pretty pretty on point based on what you and I know about Sam's research uh, into the subject and uh, his decision uh, of making uh, David Icke and his, I don't want to say teachings because teachings is the weird, like a wrong word for that because really it's like theories, right? So theories uh, into a two-parter. Yeah, and uh, it may have become a three-parter at this point. Who knows? Uh, but we'll see about that. 
and you created a fun little meme. I think uh, you'll have to send me a link so I could post it in the show notes. Um, the thing with memes, they actually, the first time I heard the word was in uh, one of my art history classes in the early 2000s. So it was before they were, um, before uh, Know Your Meme was available, uh, and before they really gained a huge following, which I would say, what, 2012, 2013 is when memes really like burst out onto the scene where like everybody yeah. was sharing them and they became stupid? <laughs> yeah, I'd say, I'd say 2012 ish, yeah. Where certain, uh, Higher level executives would probably be asking people to post memes as part of um, their job. And I won't lie to you. I've had, I I think I mentioned this before on the podcast. I've had um, those issues with uh, prior bosses not understanding what a meme is. They thought that any picture with words on it was a meme. And so I was told to go post memes on the internet, on social media, uh, that actually weren't memes, but just image macros. Well, this was exactly what I was alluding to. Uh, the, and uh, can you maybe explain uh, the difference between an image macro and a meme? An image macro is something that uh, gets posted and uh, contains information in theory, right, of a certain nature. Whereas a meme is sort of uh, more of a shared cultural experience, I guess would be the best way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, like I'll, a shorthand. Yeah, exactly. Although they, they can look alike, um, but a meme gets propagated all over the place, whereas like you can share an image macro with me and just between the two of us and then it'll get nowhere because nobody cares. But a meme is some uh, an image macro that g- becomes universal, I guess, becomes a meme. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it, right? So it, it may start its life as an image macro, but then as it gains uh, speed and virality across users, it becomes understood. And I think that uh, it's a really interesting way in which all of this has really developed over the last like 15 years, right? So uh some of the first memes i remember must have been all your base yeah that's that's the one i always think of as first but um there was an article i read um was it uh, yeah it was on on thrillist um talking about how people have decided that the first true internet meme was the dancing baby which we discussed on the show before um it kind of was able to propagate not only through the internet which was in its infancy really and not as many people had it, but because of Ali McBeal and showing up on that show, it really uh, hit everywhere. Yeah, I definitely uh, do agree that there was like this, uh, it was like the dawn of, of memeing, really internet memeing right there. Yeah, that's that's where it all started. But yeah, All Your Base was another one where there's some great, uh, even like uh, we've mentioned local newscasts before because they're so much fun and ridiculous, but it it kind of like hit local newscast as well that one was that was 98 or 99 all your base um, yeah from the game zero Wing. i think it was 2000 actually yeah yeah and and that's from a game i played on genesis and i actually have on my uh, raspberry pi retro pi which is it's a terrible game it's just a shooter that's not very good and very poorly translated uh the hamster uh, dance i'm gonna list well. off two that are musical in nature and i'm curious to know if you uh know either of these okay. so the first one is lobster magnet no i don't know that Okay, so that was a uh, popular. I think it was on Ebom's World, if I am uh, not mistaken. But yeah, it was. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and link to that in the show notes because I think it's a great song. It's a uh, it, it's a metal song. The sounds like it was recorded by like by one microphone in the corner, and there's uh, it was a very kind of uh, groundbreaking uh, animated video that a lot of videos kind of subsequently ripped off. Okay, and then the second one is uh, the Group X Mario Twins uh, song. That rings a little bit of a bell but can you refresh my memory yeah it's the it's this guy telling a story about the mario twins but uh they look the same no i don't remember this at all and then there's a uh 
uh, drummer starts playing the beat to the first uh, Mario Brothers game. See, it sounds like something I would have enjoyed, but I don't remember that one at all either. So uh, please post to the show notes so that when I create the links, I'll be actually able to look at it. I sure will. And the funny thing is, I was actually, independently of this, a friend of mine uh, messaged me about Mario Twins today, and we got into this discussion. He had the really good point of, like, uh, it's shorthand for he and I because we live that shared cultural experience. But to people en masse, like, for example, like you, you haven't heard of of Mario Twins at all. So it was kind of really interesting to kind of think about globally how memes now are very, very commonplace. And I think the most um, well-known... Uh, unfortunately, meme these days is the Peppy the Frog one. That's kind of a shared cultural experience amongst most of the public. Yeah, but if for the, all the wrong reasons. Yeah, exactly. I mean, its own creator disavowed the way that it's being used. It's uh, <laughs> you almost want to feel sad for poor Peppy the Frog because of what he was and then what he became. Yeah, and I think that's just the way the internet kind of twists and turns things, right? Like, for example, like let's take in a very unfortunate meme, the Star Wars kid video, right? So that video was never meant to be public. This kid uh, went through hell, basically, after it was released, and um, it didn't end well for him. Uh, years of counseling and things like that, right? And it, it was this video that wasn't intended to be public, and this uh, visual macro that becomes a meme uh, b- despite itself, really. And he's a local kid, actually, from uh, Quebec. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh... What was that? That was 1999? 2000? No. I don't remember how long ago that was. That Just everything is all uh, melted was, together it, at this point. Yeah, it was 2002. See, I, I could have sworn that was earlier, but yeah, and we weren't able to really share videos that, that long ago. So that was when we first were able to start sharing videos. He's lucky that didn't happen in the time of YouTube. Well, yeah, I, um, yeah it's a very good point, actually. Uh, a lot of these early names were... Um, flash based though like lobster magnus flash based the group x marrow twins was flash based all your base the song was flash based and now flash is uh but a distance distant flash in the wind is that the way to say that i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah see so you can even look at those on iphones for example like one of the earliest uh instances of a meme breaking through the mainstream was the hamster dance song yeah that thing was annoying uh and what was that one was it a hamster or a squirrel or something where it would kind of like zoom in on the squirrel's face? Oh, the dramatic uh, squirrel? Thing? Yeah, dramatic chipmunk or squirrel or something. See, I don't even remember any of these, but like they're kind of sort of flooding back. And I'm sure people listening to this will remember these. Um, and any memes you think that we should have mentioned? I'm kind of curious. Like, I want this to be a thought experiment for all of our listeners, right? So the idea that um, we're talking about these different memes, I want them to imagine them as they are and then go and verify what they really were on the internet, right? So the things that we've talked about here, the uh, hamster dance, the marrow twins, the lobster magnet, the dancing baby, all your base, all of these things, I want people to keep them in mind and sort of replay them and then go verify how well your memory serves you. And so something I want to bring up is that how these memes are the classic memes. And then more recently, memes have just sort of kind of, like we've mentioned earlier, degenerated into just being image macros that became popular. One of the ones that sticks in my mind from a few years ago that everyone was posting on Facebook, like including like grandmas and children and everyone, was the one is um, where what you thought something was going to be, what it actually is, and what people think it is, like the journalism or like working uh, in a construction site or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know. It's kind of like the the six-panel image board. Yes. And that got real old real quick, but it was crazy as you can tell when certain groups of friends were discovering it because then all that group of friends would just be posting that stupid thing. 
And I feel like there's a natural progression, right? There's always the early adopter. And I feel like you and I, um, uh, maybe not you, but maybe me a little bit more, is <laughs> yes. an early adopter of a lot of these memes, right? So the idea is like the long tail of the meme usually ends with someone way out of the periphery of knowing, finally getting it, right? So one of the most annoying things on earth, and uh, you can fight me on this one, are minions, right? Well, uh, my kids love minions. Well, no, my daughter doesn't really care for them. My son seems to love them at this point because the minions movie came out. Uh, but uh, what you don't? How old is your kid? He's four. There you go. The a four-year-old's not busy posting um, image macros of minions onto the internet. Yeah, it should. Unless he has an alt account that he hasn't told you about. No, he's not allowed uh, to be doing that. Um, but adults should not be really um, dealing with minions too much. And again, this is a, a, a fact. You see it everywhere. You see older people posting them. I find it interesting how people latch on to certain things and how it becomes popular. And that's basically what a meme is. Did we even explain where meme came from? It's a, it's a term coined by Richard Dawkins in, way back in 1976, before either of us were born, um, for his book, The Selfish Gene. And what he was using it for was something that spreads within a culture, sort of like a, a gene for culture. So right. uh, how genes spread among humans, memes spread among cultures. There's a way of looking at them. And uh, then later, um, it was kind of taken into consideration for how things propagate and spread among the internet. One of the first articles about this is um, a Wired article from 1994. I came across this um, when I was looking at the, the Thrillist article about the first meme ever, ever, and it pointed me to this 1994 article from Wired called Meme Counter Meme. And it talks about how memes were produced. And it was, it's actually a really interesting article about how this one guy was able to get this idea spread ab- among uh, 1994 uh, message boards on the internet. Uh, pretty so interesting. So what is, who is the name of the, the author of this article? The article's by uh, Mike Godwin. So uh, Godwin's Law then? Yes, that's, that's exactly what he did because he wanted to prove how everything becomes, what did he say? It's something about how... Uh, so as any online discussion uh, grows longer, larger, or you know, uh, has more replies, let's say like it's a message board or whatever, the possibility of a comparison to Hitler approaches a totality, like a one. Yeah. So no matter what you talk about, a comparison to Hitler will be made throughout uh, the vortex of time. It's pretty interesting how... So okay, so there we go. So that's how it came... Okay, wait, you're, you're blowing my mind now. I didn't even make the connection. <laughs> Yeah, it's this great article that's like a great time capsule about talking about BBSs uh, and message boards at the time. And then this thing, Godwin's Law, exists now and it's, it's kind of stated naturally and is referenced all of the time. And it comes from this one article that he was trying to prove a point about memes. It's, yeah, which it's memeception right there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to, to look back and see where these things came and where they are now. And where are they now? Well... Memes don't last anywhere near as long as they used to. It's kind of like in one... It's a short meme cycle. It it is. It's sort of like the news, unfortunately, which shouldn't be that way. But hey, uh, memes have a very short shelf life now. And I would say that they have... um, How would I put this? Um, They have a shorter shelf life amongst those who matter, right? Influencers. Exactly. Like Jake Paul. Yeah. Well... Sure. Let's if you want to go down the YouTube rabbit hole, sure. Uh I do feel like memes stick around and like I was saying before, the long tail of the meme, right? So the uh the grandma or the uncle who rarely logs on Facebook but sees something funny, to them, 
um, it takes just as long to reach them. But I think the interest in uh, a meme of the moment has shortened. I definitely think that you're right in that instance. It would be funny to see if we could bring back some of our old memes and just like get them to propagate out there again. It's just that I find uh, the people we deal with online, uh, our audience and stuff, are a little too savvy for that for them to be tricked into like starting the hamster dance again or uh, well they could help us they could aid us in this okay by sending uh, it to so, like their grandmas and grandpas yeah and exactly weird uncles so you'll go ahead and check all of our facebook and uh our twitter pages uh in the coming days as we decide which meme we're going to try and revive right uh some of uh, just very quickly uh before ending this discussion uh do you have a couple of favorites that we haven't mentioned yet that we haven't mentioned no, uh, my like the top ones for me were the dancing baby. I really remember that one. Um, oh well, we didn't mention Leroy Jenkins, did we? No, not yet. So Leroy Jenkins is up there. Look, do we classify that as a meme or a viral video? Um, I think once you take the context of Leroy Jenkins out and you use it in other places, it becomes a meme. I guess you could. There were um, image macros created of it, so there we go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That uh, became popular. I think my favorite though was all your base. Because when I yes. saw that the yes. first time, it blew my mind. It made me laugh and laugh and laugh. So there are three that I'd like to very quickly mention. One of them is Grumpy Cat. Oh, yeah. That's a more recent one. Uh, Lol Cats, which is a cottage industry unto itself. Oh, yeah. Can I has cheeseburger? Yeah, exactly. And the third and most important one to me is the Rick Roll. Well, that's, that's probably, I would say, the top one at this point. Uh, my favorite move is, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but there was a website where you could spoof your phone number and caller ID and you could call someone and then just, uh, they'd be rickrolled. Well, what, what else would the internet be for at this point? Oh, it dude, like it was six months of hell for everyone. Like we do, uh, we, I have different circles of friends who do it to each other continually. Uh, they think that work was calling. They think that professors were calling. They think that classmates were calling, but it turns out, no, it's just, uh, just good old, Rick Astley. I'm glad we respect each other too much for you to do that to me. If I if I had access to that because the website obviously is down because I'd imagine it cost a lot of money to do that, then uh, I still would do it. But uh, unfortunately, it is uh, not in existence as far as I can tell. He does have a good uh, sense of humor about it, though. He really does. And I saw him live in 2008, and it was a wonderful experience. If we just play the same song over and over again, he Rick rolled the entire concert going audience. <laughs> Well, it was one of these, like, remember the 80s tours, so everyone had, like, three or four songs. Okay, so he'd so, come out and... Well, surprisingly enough, he closed the night with Together Forever, his other hit off that album. Yeah, I remember that, too. Oh, boy. Moving on to the last bit of uh, tech news that kind of bleeds into the paranormal. Uh, turns out that uh, Alexa is laughing. <laughs> and it's not a normal-sounding Alexa voice laugh it's a weird human laugh now amazon's come out and explained what was happening is that it was misunderstanding uh, a few commands and hearing um alexa laugh oh sorry i think i you might have to bleep uh, me saying alexa and um it made it go off to laugh even though nobody said anything just like a few weeks ago when my uh, google home decided to chime in to our podcast but the problem was it was just happening and it was sounding really creepy and it made us wonder what else can uh, the Alexa and Google Home and maybe to a lesser extent the HomePod um, kind of channel through its speakers. 
that's a really good question. I'd, I'd like to explore both that and the idea of like why this was happening, right? Uh, it's very creepy. I've seen the compilations. That unnatural laugh that's not Alexa's laugh is probably the creepiest part of all of this. And people have been saying that like it does it all kinds of things. Like uh, if you ask it to turn off the lights, it'll do it and then laugh. Yeah, or it won't turn off the lights and then laugh. It's very malicious. Yeah, and it's just... I think it's just coming down to it, misunderstanding a command... Uh, to, to and instead of it doing whatever you asked it to, it just understood laughing. Or what if it's like a nervous assistant and it's, it doesn't understand what you say, so it just laughs out of being nervous. It's <laughs> like it doesn't know how to yeah. comprehend. It's weird. It's going to get fired. Alexa, you're fired. You have to bleep that. I'm hoping that it, no, I'm hoping it activates something. I'm I'm kind of super curious, but yeah. So uh, Amazon's official line is that they're not quite sure why it's happening, and they're probably developing a patch for it. But are they really? Do you think maybe this is some kind of um, uh, psychological test to see how people handle this kind of thing? Some weird uh, MKUltra stuff uh, that the yeah, exactly that, that Amazon is uh, pulling. I mean, we've already invited Amazon into our homes in this way, right? And they're listening to us constantly. Let's not lie to each other about this. Soon they're going to have uh, their own locks and doorbells and cameras so that they just walk into your house and drop things off for you. Um, now we're going into the realm of uh, tech to the paranormal to the um, conspiracy theory realm. It's interesting because this, this was mentioned on uh, Graveyard Tales and they recommended we talk about it too. And uh, here we are. We're taking recommendations because uh, this is sort of perfect for our show. If you had an Amazon Alexa in your home, would you keep it at this point? Yeah, I'm fine with it. I don't. Th- I th- uh, look. The explanation given by Amazon makes sense. It's just the thing that makes me wonder is why does it laugh so differently from everything else it says? That's the thing that's really creepy. That's what bothers me too about this whole thing. It's like somebody else has channeled through it. So you might say it's an EVP in a smart speaker. Oh, wow. Can we, uh, can we start that? That would be great if uh, speakers <laughs> started getting EVPs. I wonder if that's going to actually ever happen where people are going to say, look, this is, I'm hearing like the voice of my uh, like dead pet through my, uh, my uh, Alexa smart speaker. Oh, for sure. In the same way that uh, people claim to hear uh, distant cell phone signals and lost loved ones talking to them, I think that uh, stories will adapt and evolve to mention the smart speaker. You know, the materials in Alexa may be a spiritual tuning fork. Oh, that's interesting to think. Imagine how good they'll sound on the HomePod. <laughs> the bass response on there, you know, the subwoofer frequencies, it's perfect, really. Yeah, it attunes itself to the room, so you'll have the EVP coming around from behind you. What if the internet is just another plane of existence, Angelo? But then who is phone? Hello, all you curious creatures out there. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are the hosts of Into the Portal. If you like myths, legends, history with a paranormal twist, join us every week as we explore lesser-known mysteries of our world and beyond. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, and all other major podcast platforms, and at IntoThePortal.com, your gateway to the bizarre. The only question is, do you dare peer into the portal? Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we're switching gears from tech to the paranormal. And a quick note to start things off, you just heard a promo from the Into the Portal podcast. So this is uh, a duo. Uh, from the west coast of Canada, Amber and Andrew, and you should go check out their delightful little show. Uh, their most recent episode that aired while we're recording this is about Mongolian deathworms, and I refuse 
to deal with them after listening to that episode. So, uh, yeah. Those things sound absolutely awful. They look like intestines. Their heads explode, spit venom on you. Not a pleasant experience in the Gobi Desert. One of the other episodes you should check out is one of the first ones about the legend of Ogopogo, which, of course, is located in the Okanagan region of British Columbia. Beautiful region to visit. And you may try and go find yourself a little West Coast cryptid out there. Yeah, they're delightful uh, Canadians. Unlike us, who are not delightful Canadians. We're just... (laughs) We're We're just Canadians. (laughs) Yeah. So just a couple of quick house cleaning items. First things first. Angela, how was your day yesterday, March 20th? How was your alien abduction day? Great. I didn't get abducted by aliens, so that's always a plus. How does uh, one feel about that? Because some people do want to be abducted, right? Well, just to to clarify, uh, this comes out on the 21st of March. So yesterday was Alien Abduction Day. But am I ruining everything by saying this or not? I think what you're trying to do now is create a time loop, which is something we'll be discussing later on in this episode. Because uh, through the magic of editing, this has been recorded a little bit before March 20th, but now it's March 20th was yesterday, so I'm getting very confused, although not as confused as it's going to be later. So, hey, this is a preview of things to come. But all that to say, I was not abducted by aliens, or maybe I was. If you're hearing this, maybe I was. I don't know. I love the idea of hedging our bets on this one. I'm going to say with not abducted. Yeah, I've been pretty protected from the aliens. They haven't been abducted to me uh, lately, so uh, that hasn't happened in years. We may have to one day get into your alien abduction story, which I'm sure is very riveting and involves many uh, very boring things happening to you in the night. Yeah, the aliens, they wanted me to figure out how to get their Android phones to work with their iPhones, and I told them I don't deal with Android. So last week, uh, we dealt with the Philadelphia experiment, which was a uh, widely known hoax, right? I initially, when I first heard of it, didn't think it was a hoax, and then um, kind of forgot about it. And then in preparing for this show realized how much of a hoax it was, especially by uh, reading that great article by Jacques Vallée. Yeah, right. The, and once again, the article I wanted to discuss this last week, actually, kind of felt like reading the UFO version of, or the paranormal version of Moby Dick. Because uh, Moby Dick is a novel ostensibly about a man uh, in a, a, a pursuit, but it's also like a manual on how to live life. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of reading it. Uh, too long. Didn't read. <laughs> Perfect. But yeah, I very much felt like the Jacques Vallée 50 years uh, of a hoax, the anatomy of a hoax, the, uh, the article uh, covered a lot of ground and sort of fleshed out how one should treat a lot of these different sorts of items and how to rationally approach any paranormal subject. And uh, once again, I implore you to go read that before you start uh, venturing off into the UFO investigator field. I'd like to think you'll need it if you venture into what we're going to talk about tonight, because it is a mess. It is one of the most amazingly frustrating subjects I've ever had to deal with. And I, I don't think I've ever done more research than this. And I was telling you off air before, it felt like I was almost studying for a test um, with this episode because the fact is there are so many strands and so many confusing plot points in the narrative we're about to get into uh, that I feel like, yeah, we're probably going to forget some facet of what we talk about because there's just so much that we're trying to cram into this one. And it's it's such an infuriating subject because of the fact that like there is no actual proof beyond uh the stories of a few uh select people so uh from the ashes of the philadelphia experiment rises uh a project that's been uh, named the montauk project and so the idea behind the montauk project is a continuation of the work of uh the rainbow project slash the philadelphia experiment well you mentioned how it rises from the ashes it was also called at one point the phoenix project according to uh the star of the show we'll get to later 
Um, right. So it's kind of packaged together as the Montauk Project, but really there are different eras of the Phoenix Project. Um, so uh, the first era, the first Phoenix era went from 1948 to 1968, with the second era starting in 1969 and going to 1971, and then 1971 onwards until um, 1983. But let's back things up a sec, shall we? I do, because I wanted to just say thank you for doing all the research on this and uh, sending me the links to go through, because I think I would have gone insane if I had to do this research, because this thing is bonkers. So I remember uh, when I was reading through this last couple of days, and I knew in telling you this and preparing for the show, when I asked you to read these, I knew you'd get infuriated just in the same way that I was for multiple reasons. Uh, But, you know, uh, let's digress and let's start from the beginning, right? So... Uh, there is a man named Preston Nichols, and according, uh, and he's the author of the book, The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, which we'll um, be exerting uh, through various portions of the episode. So the Montauk Project was an extension of the work first performed with the Philadelphia Experiment and the USS Eldridge. So in the middle of the 1950s, um, when Jessup starts writing his book and getting the Allende letters at the same time, apparently, secretly, the United States Congress was pitched on the idea of continuing uh, this weird sort of project. Uh, but according to Nichols, this was rejected as they believed it was far too dangerous of a project. So instead, the Department of Defense picked up the baton and funded the project through the recovery of $10 billion in Nazi gold from a train in France. <laughs> See, it's Godwin's law at this point. Perfect. So the project name became Project Phoenix, and a lot of the civilians and scientists involved in these operations were ex-Nazis, as well as uh, Jewish refugees who came to the United States during and after World War II. Already, it's uh, becoming crazier and crazier and it's just started that's the thing that got me when i was reading through this is that uh, it just took a few minutes to bring up nazis their gold weather control off the books government projects um all the way to uh soon to be an alien chair this thing is crazy Right. So the first uh, the first place they set up is uh, in Long Island at the Brookhaven National Laboratory. But the problem is that part of the project calls for the use of a radar dish, which would be too obvious. Um, uh, Brookhaven's kind of located um, in a neighborhood. There's like a lot of public visibility. So they decided to move things uh, to a decommissioned U.S. Air Force Base in Montauk, New York. So in the late 1960s, the equipment is moved underground to Camp Hero, and the space itself above ground becomes non-active and turned into a park or wild life refugee. And apparently everything underground is still owned by the Air Force, though. Even now? Uh, I assume so, yeah. I, I don't know how it is now, but I guess so. Well, I'm going to include some shots of some really good urban exploration around the area. There's some great shots. They went into it, and uh, there's some good shots of the actual used equipment that's kind of like destroyed um and apparently the radar radar dish moved recently even though has been decommissioned for uh decades so that's kind of interesting that's um well actually not that recently almost uh i guess in 2009 it seemed to have just turned to face south which is bizarre in and of itself but apparently kind of got loose and kind of just swung away but who knows what's going on maybe they're still some essence there of the aliens that were controlling everything. <laughs> uh, so from 1969 onwards, uh, during this era, a crew of about 30 people worked at the installation, according to Al Bielik, who we'll get into in a second, and his story is just also utterly insane. You think? Uh, I, don't I feel think so. I think he's pretty uh, reasonable. We'll talk about that in a sec, though. <laughs> yeah, no, he's not. I feel like now's the perfect time to run through some of the more insane things people like Preston Nichols and Albiel claimed happened uh, in the 1970s and onwards, right? So it is alleged that multiple indigent, 
uh, or homeless people, were murdered or maimed as part of an experiment centered around electric magnetic radiation by being placed right in front of radar beams. Why were they subjected to this? They were trying to figure out mind control, but really, unfortunately, um, the radar beams allegedly were so powerful that they just vaporized uh, lungs and like destroyed bodies and things like that. Can radar do that? Well, according to this, they can. According to this guy's, a lot of things can do a lot of stuff. Oh, Angela, it doesn't end there, though, my friend. Uh, I know. No, that's, that's, I would say, one of the more normal things he's mentioned. So a baseline, uh, a minimum of over 10,000 American children were taken off the streets and brought to Montauk to be tested on and or programmed because uh, the Montauk Project and Phoenix Project uh, were centered around a cornucopia of different kinds of things. But at its center core was uh, its ability to create psychics and allow people to harness psionic abilities in order to wage war and uh, do things like time travel, which is what we're going to discuss in a sec. Well, when I was reading the notes you sent me and the links... I couldn't help but relate this whole project to things like uh, Stephen King's The Mist or Half-Life and um, also Stranger Things. And when I looked it up, well, I was obviously not the first person to think of this because there's a really good article also from The Thrillist. I seem to be mentioning them a lot tonight. They've become our new verge. Where a lot of the stuff from Stranger Things is sort of based on what happened uh, at the Montauk Project or purported to have happened at the Montauk Project. Right. And I do think that we talked about things like the Philadelphia Experiments, uh, which kind of the movie plays a role in this whole narrative at one point, which we'll get into in a sec. I feel like we keep digressing. (laughs) Yes, I know. But that's what we're good at. This is why people come to Double Density for our digressions. Are you ready to take this to the next level, my friend? I can't wait. All right. So apparently... On the premises, there is an alien-created, mind-altering chair that allows people, especially people with psychic powers, to generate thoughts that can be transmitted and become real, with the signal transmitting to people, placing them, according to Albulik, in a pre-orgasmic state to better be receptive to programming. Yeah, the whole pre-orgasmic state had me uh, kind of flummoxed and wondering what was in his mind when he was thinking this up. Uh and that aliens would create a chair to do this. And I think there was like version two of the chair later on. Yeah, the Montauk boys. Uh, so several psychics, including Duncan Cameron, which we'll talk about in a sec, uh, get to use uh, this chair. So apparently, according to Preston Nichols, in the 1950s, ITT developed sensor technology that could literally display what a person was thinking. It was essentially a mind-reading machine. It operated on the principle of picking up the electromagnetic functions of human beings and translating those in an understandable form. It's still a mystery how this technology was developed. It has been suggested that research was aided by the Syrians, and that's not with the Y, so it's S-I-R-I-A-N-S, in alien race who come from the star system known as Sirius. The theory has the aliens providing the basic design and humans working it out from that. See, for a second, I thought uh, you did mean the Syrians uh, from Syria, but no. Um, no, of course not. That would be too easy. No, that, that would be too earthly and uh, make too much sense. No, it has to be something from a planet, that uh, a star system that's extraordinarily far away. So from the chair's powers, they realized that they could transmit uh, beings and things and thoughts through time, Angelo. So that's how they got here so easily. Exactly. So the Phoenix folks were then able to create a time tunnel. And by 1979 or 1980, they were able to physically traverse to time. So apparently, according uh, to Preston Nichols and Albie, like the government, quote, lost a lot of kids, unquote, through the time tunnel, which uh, was shaped as a hallway uh, you were propelled towards. And it was kind of like a spiral. And so you'd be sucked in. And if someone cut the power to the transmitter off, you'd be stuck, stuck in time. When I, when I picture what it looks like, it, 
in my head, it looks like the lenses of those uh, X-ray goggles that used to sell at the back of, in the back of a comic book. If you know, what oh I mean. right, like the bouncy ones. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to quote from uh, Press Nichols's book here in terms of trying to explain time because I I think I get it and I think I can explain it to you, but I'd rather he do it because I feel like his explanation is a lot better. So uh, Press Nichols describes uh, time as being like playing chess. Like you can't alter the course of time necessarily. Uh, you can let it happen, but you can't really. Uh, it's sort of predetermined more or less, but there are variables. So uh, quote at Montauk, the scientists also viewed the future. The viewers they had gave them the ability to look at multiple futures. Once they chose a particular scenario and activated by someone or something traveling to it, the future would become fixed. That point would be locked in time from whence the connection was made. It would create a loop that was fixed. For example, and he gives an example here, let's say multiple futures were viewed with different people becoming president. Suppose the future with Sam Jones as president was chosen by the researchers for whatever reason. Linking a person or item from the present would lock in President Sam Jones into that scenario no matter what. However, none of this means that a fixed-point scenario can be further changed by the scientists doing some more manipulations. At this writing, we're currently in a time loop. The loop extends from where the Montauk researchers penetrate into the past up to where they penetrate into the future. It is fixed and would appear unalterable. However, this does not mean that we're all relegated to being hopeless slaves of time manipulators. Some of the things that got to me was how they kept contradicting themselves, sort of. How... They couldn't see past 2012 or 2013, but then they managed to go into like almost 10,000 AD just before, like that's the true block. But 2012, something crazy happens. Of course, this is all being mentioned in the early 90s. So 2012 seemed like the distant future at that point. And here we are in 2018. And uh, the craziest thing that's happened is something that they probably would have never predicted and a certain businessman becoming president. Uh, Boom goes the dynamite, really. That's a meme as well, Brian. Exactly. <laughs> Coming back from the tech uh, section of the show. So according to Nichols, uh, they sent a group of soldiers through to 603080 and saw a statue of gold in an abandoned city. Now, if you want to go ahead and take a look at the cover of the Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, that's the, the gold horse that they depict, apparently, allegedly. Uh, and as you were saying before, the furthest the group can go is 10,000 AD. But then they have trouble going through and seeing 2002 clearly. So I don't understand where that comes from either. I'm... I'm very confused. Um, I think that's the whole point, though, is to keep people confused because you don't want them to think too much about uh, what they're talking about because obviously none of it makes any sense at all. There's also some notes that mention the face on Mars and how that's an important part. Of course, the face on Mars, which is actually nothing, uh, but they didn't know that then. And, of course, they were embellishing things that they thought they knew and we would never find out because nobody thinks about the future and how people like us will have started a podcast and dissect these crazy things. So Preston Nichols talks about the uh, face on Mars and Richard Hoagland's work about um, that part of Mars, right, which is Cydonia. But uh, in using newer technologies, we realized that the face on Mars is actually nothing. Um, they alleged that uh, they were able to send a team underneath the face of Mars where there's a, a pretty large colony. Of course there is. Of Martians. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, it all starts with the Martians. And it ends uh, in terrible sadness for all of us. I um, also enjoyed the uh, website you sent me uh, called Al Bielik Debunked. Right. Um, just looking at that site, it does need a web ring at the bottom uh, to link <laughs> us to other Montauk and uh, Philadelphia Experiment websites. 
Uh, there's a flag counter. There's an uh, there's some great little funny buttons that animate. It's all very circa 2001. But if you take a look, it was last updated in 2017. So actually, no, that's wrong. Last update, January 28th, 2018. Even worse than that. So you mentioned Albulik, and I've mentioned him before. Albulik. How do we even begin to approach a man like Albulik um, and his alter ego, Ed Cameron? Yeah, well, maybe I guess start be... with his timeline. Right. So uh, Albulik, who worked uh, with the Philadelphia Experiments um, and is also purported to be one of the two men who jumped off the Eldridge in 1943 alongside Duncan Cameron and end up in 1980. 1980- oh, okay, let's just start with this. Uh, uh, so Albulik apparently was born uh, in 1927, apparently, though he doesn't remember this. He, his first memory is being a year old and being at some kind of dinner party and remembering every facet of the conversation. So he ends up in the army. Oh, sorry, in the Navy. And uh, I don't He gets recruited to be uh, as part of the Montauk Project. It's all very convoluted. Um, it's very confusing. So if you look at we're going to link to a timeline. There's two sides to the timeline. One for Ed Cameron, one for Albielic. Uh, who are apparently the same person, right? And Ed Cameron goes up to like the 1950s, and then Albielic starts in 1927, goes all the way to 2000. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, we jump where uh, Ed Cameron was available, and he's available. He's around in 1983, and then in 2137, and then in 2749. Um, it's all very stupid. I'm going to quote from Preston Nichols' book about Albulik to sort of give a better idea of what was going on here. prize-winning Preston Nichols. (laughs) Uh, So apparently uh, Ed Cameron was working on this technology as part of the first phase of the Phoenix Project, right? And apparently this technology stepped on the toes of some other powerful group, and Al believes it has something to do with uh, this other research group, and it was decided that they would take Ed out. So a group of black ops soldiers remove Ed from the premises and put him on a train to the Pentagon. So Ed was taken to McLean, Virginia, placed into a portal, and sent to Alpha Centauri 1. After several days of interrogation by aliens, Ed was returned to the Pentagon. That's a harrowing experience, then. That is that he's like the first uh, alien abductee, then. Oh, uh, it gets better than that, though, because this is the explanation. So Ed was then taken to Montac on August 12th, 1953, and physically regressed to Albulik uh, uh, to the year 1927. And then, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't his soul sucked into a body of somebody else who became his brother or something bizarre like that? Right, so Ed Cameron. So that's, so there's two Camerons, right? Yeah, so there's Duncan, who is a psychic, which we'll get into in a sec, and there's Ed Cameron, uh, who gained a brother, um, uh, who, uh, or whose brother li- had two souls, I guess would be the best way of putting it. So this is not confusing at all. This is just a regular day at the army base. Oh, straight up, yeah. Like, don't even worry about it. Like, there's breakfast, soul-sucking, and then there's lunch. After Ed Cameron... And Duncan Cameron jump off the USS Eldridge in 1943. But keep in mind, this is apparently Ed Cameron Albelic. They land in, tw- in the year 2137. They both spent six weeks in a hospital bed recovering from radiation burns, suffered from being in hyperspace. Towards the end of their stay, Ed is moved by means unknown to the year 2749. So Ed returns from 2751, which he was previously at at one point, in order to pick up his brother Duncan, and together they travel back to 1983. So if I were going to be tested on this, I would fail because I'm completely lost. I think reality would fail here, right? Yeah, um, and um, if our listeners are lost as well, this is totally normal. Just uh, listen, maybe uh, rewind a bit, rewind your cassette that you're listening to this on, 
and uh, try to figure it out or follow along with the notes we'll put in the show notes because this is one convoluted disaster of a hoax because uh, did, he ever, so, did either of them ever come out and say oh, that no. this was a oh, hoax? Oh, no. Hoax. Uh, both, are, both are gone, right? They both passed Preston, away? Yes. Uh, Preston Nichols uh, is still around, I think. Al Bielik died a couple of years ago, and I think Duncan Cameron died, though I may be wrong on that one. But So he was a real person, though? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is bizarre. Oh, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Duncan for a sec. So Duncan was used extensively as a psychic in the Montauk Project. Uh, during one of the experiments, Duncan, uh, quote, lost his time lock, unquote, and began to age one year for every hour that passed. So he's quickly on his way to death in one of these experiments. So, uh, Angelo, uh, it gets better. It does. The time engineers of Montauk go back in time to 1950 and convince Duncan's original father, Alex Cameron, to sire another son. When done, they remove Duncan's soul and put it into the new child. This person that we know of today is Duncan Cameron. Well, that was what they did back then in the army. In the, yeah, they just removed souls and yeah, moved well, things around? Yeah, that's how you got people to get drafted. Well, yeah, exactly. Hey, come get a new, better body. Can we... Uh, well, if you watch... Um... Have you watched Altered Carbon? I have not yet. Kind of, sort of like that. Uh, so I want to I, I want to run through a couple more quotes here. So there's an interview posted on whale.to, which is just this insane site. You know, it's one of those, like, information needs to be free. Like, it's like as if you took Above Top Secret and just crammed all of the posts ever into, like, a couple of pages. I read a bunch of those pages, Brian. Um, I don't know what to say about that and how I feel about you making me do that. Um, it is... It almost drove me insane reading through that. It's just text and text. And I can't imagine who took the time to type all that out. So the Montauk Project comes to an end on August 12, 1983, right? So we talked about Duncan before and him being a psychic. And he's using this chair in order to open up this time tunnel that people go through to visit hyperspace, the year 10,000, uh, colonies on Mars, they go meet aliens. It's kind of like a, a, gra- a grab bag of like things and places that you can go see and visit, right? And, and also the August 12th date is significant um, in all of time, apparently. Right. So uh, let's recontextualize the Philadelphia experiment through the lens of the Montauk Project. Are you ready to do that with me? I can't wait. So, starting about August 6th, 1943, UFOs appeared over the Eldridge for about six days. They were there during the test, and one of the UFOs was sucked up into hyperspace along with the Eldridge, and it ended up in an underground facility in Montauk in 1983. It contained a charging device, which some aliens made us, and so this is a quote from uh, Albulik, made us go back and get for them, as they didn't want humans to have it. We still don't know who they are. Uh, so, Preston Nichols asks, what about the Philadelphia experiment as related to aliens? And Albiel answers, the Philadelphia experiment was not an alien operation as such, but was the setup, uh, the setup was the date, August 12, 1943, because it has to be locked to the Phoenix Project on August 12, 1983. The date was set by alien influence in order to cause a 40-year hole in hyperspace through which a large number of alien craft could enter this dimension. It worked, but it didn't last long enough to give the aliens the maximum benefit of this scenario. The order for the date came from a man in the White House who has directed certain aspects of the project. And so Preston says, oh, they're not greys. And uh, Albulik says, no, they're about six foot five feet tall. They're essentially human appearance, and they had dark leathery skin. They had no hair. Where they came from, we're not sure. We don't even know why they were there, except perhaps to observe the test on August 12, 1943. What could space be? What could it be made of? What the heck is all those lights out there? Is this just a black curtain with holes in it? 
I don't know. I'm trying to find out. Double density. So I read the Preston Nichols book a couple of times just to make sure I got everything correct. And it is very infuriating because he also talks about the idea of alternate realities and like um, existing in two places at once and like all this other stuff. Yeah, just to cover all his bases because obviously this is all garbage, but... It's just fun to... Th- you take that back, sir. Okay. So- <laughs> uh, we're, we're using your idea that this is real, right? So you take that back. It, okay. I, I'm saying it as a, as a fun, insane thought experiment that what if we're the ones who are wrong in all this and, and being skeptical about this? Well, not even skeptical, just outright saying that it's completely false and fabricated. What if we're wrong? And there are these weird... Uh, leathery aliens who are six foot five along with the greys who don't play that big of a deal apart uh, there's the nordics that have weird blood apparently um the palladians palladians right what was the stuff about the copper and the blood oh it was so odd this whole <laughs> thing was insane and i don't know if i feel dumber or smarter for having read all of it throughout this week so why don't we finish things up about the Montauk Project proper, and then we'll get into um, how this all comes to being and how like everything is is uh, talked about and there's a light shed on it. Ready? So the Montauk Project was brought to an abrupt halt on August 12, 1983, when Junior, the Bigfoot monster, was brought into form via Duncan, uh, so his thoughts became real. Uh, the monster sprung forth from Cameron's subconscious as someone gave him apparently a verbal command of the time is now. And so this monster junior goes nuts, starts destroying machinery really. And the uh, project comes to a halt. Well, that's a good way to end things with a giant monster springing from someone's mind. Best way to end a military operation. Very true. Uh, because by this time, Duncan didn't need the chair in order to uh, open up time tunnels and be psychic. So he no longer needed his alien chair. He had, no, he could just do that wherever he wants. Had the alien chair like rubbed off on him? How does that work? It was just a he kind of. I think it's kind of like a learned behavior, from what I understand, because it's, it's kind of convoluted once again. So all of the people uh, that participated in the Montauk Project were subject to many sessions of mind control and had their memories wiped by uh, Montauk technology conveniently enough. Um, and in many cases, false memories were implanted to cover up real activities. Um, but over time, Angelo, memories slowly return. So remember uh, sort of at the beginning of the segment, I'm talking about the Philadelphia Experiment movie? Yeah, that, uh, that award-winning film. Late one night in the, 1980, in the late 1980s, 88 or 89, Al Bielik sits down, turns on TV and sees HBO's on. He sees that the Philadelphia Experiment movie is on and slowly his memory starts coming back to him. And then uh, by happenstance, he runs into Preston Nichols, whose memory also... Um, has been wiped, apparently, allegedly, and um, slowly comes to be. Nothing like good old-fashioned HBO to get your mind going and recovered lost memories of weird experiments that you were taking part of and how you used to be a time traveler. And what we're going to do, actually, uh, is link to sort of like the uh, the pivotal moment, I guess would be the best way of describing this, of um, this entire case breaking wide open as Al Bielik shows up at a MUFON conference in January 1990 and tells his life story as best as he knows it. Let's say MUFON's uh, come a long way since then. I don't think uh, uh, the new director of research there, Chris Cogswell, would allow... Uh, somebody like this to speak at one of their engagements. I'm not sure. I don't want to speak on behalf of Chris. If he listens to this episode, maybe he can tweet at us and let us know what he thinks. But yeah, uh, this guy, not a very good uh, 
person to speak at any sort of conference unless it's a conference for crazy people. And uh, what we also failed to mention uh, during this time is that all of these are proceedings, the Phoenix Project, um, the totality of which the container is the Montauk Project, right? Uh, aided by Nikola Tesla, who wasn't dead. He didn't die in 1943. He actually uh, continued to serve uh, the U.S. government in varying capacities uh, throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then his soul was transferred into the body of Elon Musk. For sure, why not go with that at the same time? But yeah, also, um, a lot of the proceedings were run by a, a German uh, by the name of Dr. Von Neumann. He was supposed to have died in 1958. Not true. He was alive well into his 80s, allegedly, um, guiding the Montauk Project. The aliens uh, were able to preserve everyone and allow them to continue with the work that was so much needed by uh, this alien conglomerate that was controlling Earthlings. So... Here we are sort of at the end of this very frustrating little tale. And uh, if we were to go through and, and look at uh, Jacques Vallée's six countermeasures, none of them would stand up, right? So all these people are self-appointed <laughs> no, specialists. Uh, there's nothing, uh, there's no physical evidence, really, well, apart from a, a, a replica of the chair, uh, allegedly, that's still in Preston Nichols' home as of a couple of years ago. Yeah, and something that I, I, I was thinking of when I read just the first link you gave me, within the first few paragraphs they broke all of his rules oh yeah like straight up like all six of them yeah pretty much they're just making crazy claims and it makes no sense at all uh no this does not stand up to any sort of scrutiny i can't believe that there are websites dedicated to this other than websites saying just this is ridiculous it's hilarious it would make a terrible movie probably one on the sci-fi channel uh in the low low budget uh late night slot What's interesting to me, though, is that all this is predicated upon the idea that the Philadelphia experiment was real, like the the desire to make a ship invisible, et cetera, et cetera. And this horrible thing that happens, as we know, didn't actually happen. So logic suggests that the rest of this did not happen. Well, especially with the fact that they claim to be the two missing sailors, but they're not because that one of those missing sailors was actually found by Jacques Vallée and interviewed for that article. Right. So the whole idea is that these two men who hopped off the ship in 1943 uh, were flung through time, end up in 1983. And oh, an amusing anecdote is that the Montauk team tried to keep the two sets of uh, uh, Cameron and Cameron or Cameron and Cameron slash Bielik, depending on if you want to believe that this man inhabited his, another man's body, uh, apart. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. So none of this is... is, is none of this can actually be thought of as anything other than a few people just making something up in order to gain, gain some sort of semblance of fame uh, and notoriety for some bizarre reason. I, I just wonder, did these three men actually believe what they were saying, or was it all just a very well-orchestrated hoax? It's very difficult to say um, in terms of like how much they believe themselves. Um, just before I forget, though, I had a quote about um, how this time travel stuff works with regards to meeting yourself. So Preston Nichols asks Albulik, can you project yourself two hours into the future and meet yourself? And Albulik says, yes, but it's very dangerous. The person who walked into the tunnel is out of phase with the person who comes out of the other end. And it does happen. The result is that that person just incinerates. Oh, so it's not a sort of like time cop thing where they like meld into one person. No, it's it's very much like the, one of the copies gets destroyed, right? Um, but getting back to the question at hand is, I'm not sure uh, how much these people were like jerked around 
uh, into sort of creating this narrative and how much of this was they themselves creating it, right? Because the idea of these Montauk boys, right, which was uh, the name sort of given to the project of all these psychics gaining psionic abilities and working on things, and apparently they can make things materialize out of nowhere, et cetera, et cetera, um, is a very large project to be undertaken, right? Well, also the fact that tens of thousands of kids were... were at, at, a, at a very minimum. So where are all these kids and who was looking for them? It, were there that many kidnapped children in like the New Jersey area at that point? That would be like an epidemic. So some people did some research and nationally speaking at that point uh, in the early 90s, 1.3 million children went missing. But Oh, the, okay. So that actually checks out. <laughs> but no, no, but nationally, not in the area that they would have to like go pick them up, right? And this kind of ties into the, a thread that I really don't want to go down into. But Alex Jones believes oh, uh, in a version of this too that the pedophile government is collecting kids off the streets in order for people to abuse them. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Alex Jones because we might be talking about him very soon. We we might actually, uh, if the uh, time loop stays intact. I hope it does. So was any of this uh, surprising to you? All of it was surprising in that they came up with such an elaborate, elaborate, like, narrative about what happened to them just to kind of, what, get a book out of it and maybe some interviews. And it makes zero sense. It's really convoluted. It's, it's something a couple of maybe um, late high school kids or early college kids would write um, amongst themselves as almost like some sort of like D&D fantasy for the future. Oh, totally. That's exactly how it reads. And... Uh... There's just so much insanity from the idea that like this sprung forth from what was obviously a, a non-existent government project financed by Nazi billions in Nazi gold. And then aliens, uh, Nikola Tesla's alive, uh, Dr. Van Buren's alive. Uh, we are able to see up until uh, 10,000 AD, like we've time locked into there, right? So the time loop is created. It's kind of like a time slinky, really. A time slinky? That's, yeah, uh, like you were saying those, like you're talking about those glasses before, but it kind of feels like a time slinky. Like we are going down the stairs of time as we slowly bounce down, but we can be messed with. I really like that. It, um, oh, what's the slinky song? I was going to sing it, but now I won't. I like your idea of a, a time slinky. I think it's a great visual. Sort of looks like the tunnel, uh, which apparently you could drive a truck through, according to them. Uh, and well that's how they got the alien craft through there right oh yeah and it just showed up underground a time slinky i think that should have been the code name for the montauk project so you want to rename this yep time slinky it is let's hope that you and i never run into junior that he never destroys our podcasting equipment i hope not i like my stuff it's not only just for <laughs> podcasting i have my uh did you know i have a, a family photo uh account Please tell me more about your tens of thousands of photos and how you keep them backed up. So that way, uh, the Montauk people could find out about it and destroy it. I think the monster would be like terrified of coming over because he'd be bored of me telling, <laughs> look, hey, look, before you destroy this, look, I have it backed up three times and it's in the cloud. So you destroying this will not hurt me. So don't worry about it. Destroy away. But literally, 
this story is like the greatest hits of any of conspiracy theory because it involves aliens. It's got time travel. It's got secrecy. It's got government secrecy. It's got UFOs. Uh, it's got people from Mars. It's got psychics. It's got uh, hidden Nazi gold, right? Because there's this obsession with the Third Reich and aliens. Well, look, it it read a lot like um, the William Cooper book, Behold the Pale Horse, which you're making me read right now. And... Uh, it just seems like a lot of words just thrown into a page, some of them randomly, and sort of coming together as a bizarre conspiracy, connecting all the dots, following the money, all that. It's <laughs> all insane. None of it really makes that sense if you peel back even just one layer. It's all ridiculous. But you're listening to this because it's fun to talk about. It's fun to think about. But obviously, none of it is real. Uh, I definitely do not think that any of this is real. I feel like, sadly enough, I'm I'm almost questioning whether or not these were actually members of a separate government experiment, like an MK Ultra like thing that, like, th- in terms of like shared insanity. That actually makes some sense. That's a possibility. Uh, it's not something that I've looked into. I might look into it for a future episode where we might do an update of sorts. But yeah, it's this really interesting thing where all of these people add layers of complexity to a story. It's like a house of cards, right? Yeah. Uh, and one, you, you take out one little card here, and the whole thing falls down. And I guess that card. I mean, from the word go, everything falls down. Right? Yeah, so. <laughs> it just nothing makes sense. Like they didn't have me for very long, but as soon as you started mentioning that souls get transferred into like a weird kid that was born for no reason, it's very bizarre. And uh, I'd like to find out from our listeners what they think of this story. Um, do you think there's any truth to any of this do you still do you believe in the montauk project i know the 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 most recent i heard of it was when that weird thing washed up on shore do you remember that vaguely like there's like the montauk monster washed up on shore it was like a small version of what they thought was junior this is very recently like the 2000s oh yeah 2008 but it didn't turn out to be some kind of like pig or something of course of course it was it wasn't anything special at all but it just adds fuel to the fire of this whole conspiracy and tall tale. That's all it is. Three three knuckleheads just writing a, writing a, a funny little story in their uh, in their basement. That's all it was. Yeah, it is. It is the most convoluted story I think we've ever had to research, and it's definitely the one that I've spent the most time with. So thankfully, I'm going to tie things up with a bow and leave. Uh, the Philadelphia Experiment and the Montauk Project here. But yeah, as you were saying before, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Did you enjoy the fact that this was a two-part episode? Go ahead and tweet at us, double underscore density. You can reach us at facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. Or you can head over to double density.net and click on the contact button and hit us up. And hey, while you're there, you can take a look at some of our more recent episodes. If this is the first episode you listen to, you can also uh, click on our uh, host pages to see what we look like, as well as our blog for some recent-ish articles, which we're hoping to update soon. Yeah, this is uh, this, was this like our first two-parter of a segment that we've done? I think so. Yeah, it only took us what like forty-six, forty-seven episodes. So yeah, we we don't. It's kind of hard for us to do two like part series because our our shows are kind of all over the place where we just talk about different things that kind of interest us, and um, we've kind of gone into a groove of what we do is a few news hits, some and a major story for each part of the show but uh this was i think one of the longest things we've talked about because it is so convoluted 
And it's also just, there's so many levels of insanity to it, even at just a baseline, as I was saying before, that in order to unpack it, and like, I still feel like we've only scratched the surface of a lot of what's discussed out there. Um, And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with just leaving it be, because I think at this point, we may drive ourselves insane and create our own versions of Junior and destroy our own equipment. And I have one last question for you. Go ahead. Are you okay? I'm surviving. I think, I think I've come through this. I have read a lot of nonsense over the last couple of days, and I've made you read some nonsense too, um, which we're going to link to. We will, so you can read the nonsense too. You'll think to yourself, this is way too many words on a white internet page. Um, unless you go to the, um, what is it called? Al Bielik is a, no, Al Bielik debunked or whatever? Debunked, yeah. That's a classic uh, white on black site, which just will burn your retina. It feels like your internet browser is time-locked to the early 1990s. And with that, we end episode 47 of the Double Density a Podcast. Tune in next week as we discuss the Montauk Project. No, I'm not. We're not doing that. Just, we're becoming the Double Density Montauk Project podcast. Uh, just D- as a quick D- reminder, as a last M- note. P. This is clearly the first case where our Double Density podcast scale of belief right from zero to four i think we're gonna add a five for this one in terms of uh the people who believe this right so the, like we're saying like a four is like a true believer like a willie street but i think five is like a broken through the wall. Like, yeah i feel like uh they've broken through some kind of wall and so we're adding a fifth category just for that a time loop wall that built a weird spiral tunnel all right angela i will see you uh, this time next week inside of the time tunnel hopefully alexa doesn't laugh at you have a nice evening Bye. So, sorry, I need to burp there. It was not intentional, though. It was probably predetermined. It was. <laughs> <laughs>